Do you want to stay more focused on the right goals in your life or even just figure out what the right goals are for you? Do you want clarity? Do you want better work-life balance? Well, you're in the right place. Welcome to Success Through Failure. Welcome to the Success Through Failure podcast, the show that reveals failure as your path to success. You'll listen to intriguing interviews with some of the most successful people on the planet and learn how their failures became a launchpad for success and how yours can too. Here's your host, former Division I All-American wrestler, former Division I head coach, speaker, and personal coach, Jim Harshaw. Welcome to another episode of Success Through Failure. Today, I bring you Eric Davis. Eric is a former U.S. Navy SEAL and decorated veteran of the War on Terror. He's been recognized as one of the premier sniper instructors in the United States military. He's the founder of ericdavis215.com, an online platform that helps to aims to help others recalibrate their intuition on how to live a good life and lead others to do the same. Since 2008, Eric has been repurposing and teaching the performance principles he used and discovered as a SEAL and a sniper instructor. Eric lives in Southern California with his wife and two of his four children. And for the listener, if you don't have time to listen to this entire episode or if you hear something you like but don't have time to write it down, make sure you grab your free copy of the action plan. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash action. Eric, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you very much. Glad to be here. Yeah, man. So uh, a fellow father of four. So we're talking a little bit, a little bit about that off air. It's, uh, it, it's pretty crazy. So um, we may get into uh, a little bit of fatherhood stuff. But uh, in the meantime, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, maybe, you know, just kind of 30,000 foot view where you grew up and kind of just the, the short version of how you got from there to here. Oh, I grew up in uh, the Bay Area, about 20 minutes south of San Francisco in a place called Foster City, right on the Bay. Uh, my father was a captain of the sheriff department where I lived, the bishop of our church. Uh, he was somebody that I was looking to follow. Uh, I got sick when I was in my teenage years, um, left me in a little spot where uh, I knew I'd have to be uh, working things on my own or figuring things out on my own. And this is all kind of relevant about why I do what I do now. Uh, and that ultimately led me into the SEAL team. So I was in that situation where I just couldn't find a mentor or leader a place of performance, so did the only natural thing, became a SEAL, did the, uh, the Navy for 16 years. Ten of those years, I was a SEAL. Uh, five of those ten years, I was a sniper instructor, which is an odd amount of time uh, to be in that spot. Uh, but what happened is I just really dug into human performance, studied with an Olympic gold medalist, started to apply everything I read or heard or seen uh, to the art of performance and just got really, really good at it. So the Navy thought, it makes sense to keep me there for a little while. Uh, so that was the bulk of my SEAL career was actually spent training snipers. And then in 2008, left the SEAL teams uh, and became an entrepreneur and had a couple different things I did at first. And a few years ago, I found my way into writing and then taking all these performance principles that I had learned and mastered in the SEAL teams and started to apply to my entrepreneurial life and started to deploy them for people, uh, whether they're in business um, or just in their personal lives as well, because the fundamentals of performance, the practices and rhythms and things that we need to do to succeed, uh, they work across the board. Uh, so that's the 30,000 foot view of 
who I am and how I ended up here. Hopefully that covers yeah. covers what you're looking for. Awesome. That's a good starting point. Man, so many different directions to go. So why don't we start with this? So I'm thinking about performance training. You talked about performance training and being a, a SEAL sniper and SEAL, uh, a, a, a sniper trainer, instructor. What does What does human performance have to do with being a sniper? I think a lot of people maybe don't realize what it, what it takes to be a sniper. I certainly don't. Um, I'm a hunter and, and shot a lot of guns before, but, uh, so I've, but I have no idea the level of human performance required to be a sniper. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think uh, the best way to put it is uh, to become a sniper. So this is a very challenging course. There's guys that you have to be already have been a SEAL to come to our course. And there's guys that uh, fail out. So these are guys who are already made it through Navy SEAL training and they come to sniper school and they fail that. So that talks a little bit to the demands and the complexity of it. So it's a very difficult course. Why I bring that up is there are things in life that we cannot just do, um, like riding a unicycle, surfing, windsurfing, flying an airplane. Like there's just some things that a human being just can't do without a significant amount of training. We got to restructure some of the wiring in our brain. We got to break things down bit by bit. Um, golf, you see that, you know, athletes have to do it anytime you're competing, uh, at a high level. So it's not necessarily about what skill sets we're building. Those are actually quite easy. You can Google the skill sets of a sniper, just like you can Google the skill sets of an author or an entrepreneur or a football player. The, what is very simple. As a matter of fact, it's so simple and, uh, ubiquitous that that's all most people get stuck in. Uh, it's the how that really gets it. So when you look at snipers or a sales professional or somebody looking to gain more control of their time and energy in their life, it's the same thing. We need to capture and identify all of the things that are going on in the situation, break them down into small pieces so that we can start training and manipulating our intuition and our, our habits and our practices so that we can produce the result we want. Uh, I can obviously go way deeper into that seven different ways, but that's, that's the big picture. So where it's similar is becoming a sniper is not something we can show up and do. It's going to require professional levels of training and behavior modification, just like being a good father or an entrepreneur or a successful business person would. That's the, that's the connection. So can you, can you go one step further for us? Because in my mind, again, I'm looking at this and thinking you're, you're shooting a gun, and and you got to be real still and real quiet, right? It's like and I'm like I said, but I'm a deer hunter, and obviously this is a you know a thousand times deeper level and, and and more where you're going there. But like, can you can you tell us a little bit more about what that takes? Is it a level of concentration? Why do most people fail out? Is it they just can't they can't hit the target, or or is it uh, are, there, are there different things? Yeah, so. I like how you said you're a hunter and shooting, you know, what are the things I need to do? I need to be really still. I need to be really quiet. Now, I'm sure if you and I dove into that conversation, you'd come up with a handful of other things that go into a successful sure. hunt for sure. Yeah, of course. But if we were yeah, really going to think about the planning down, and location and all the, yeah, of course. Yeah, absolutely. So if you're really going to break it down, we would probably come up with some something closer to like a thousand things. Sure. Some of them are big, some of them are medium, and some of them are small. And this is where it's important. So there's a quote, and I could very well get it wrong, but it, it goes, this, I think it's Henry Thoreau, and it goes, I would not give a fig to live on this side of complexity, but I would give my life to live on the other. And what he's saying, and this is something when I teach superhuman performance, this is something I dive into deeply, is this idea of crossing complexity. 
So if I were to show up as a sniper instructor, one of the things I did is it, it kind of I showed up and it kind of it was like a bunch of guys with their hands in their pocket who are really good at what they did because they'd been doing it for years through experience. But they weren't really good at transferring that skill or capacity, which is the true definition of training. And they would just kind of sit around and give people tidbits of information. And what really helped me excel there is I started capturing everything. So I have moderate levels of OCD, I'm sure. I'm sure it would be diagnosable if I ever let a doctor get a hold of me, but <laughs> I just, I can't let it go. I have to capture all of these things. When you do that, two things happen. One, you end up with a map and systems and series of events and practices and habits and just our in, uh, like intuition tidbits, like our training. Uh, and then two, everyone thinks you've made things too complex. Everyone wants to say, keep it simple. And it, and I'm like, it's, that would be great if becoming a sniper or earning incomes in the top of the marketplace was simple, but unfortunately it's complex and I didn't make it complex. I just simply identified the bits and pieces. So if we take this a level deeper, that's what this is. We're going to find a thousand things and here's, I would say the biggest I would say the biggest takeaway when, when you look at this, this process of capturing these things and then methodically working your way through them until you produce the results is typically no one thing is going to be that exceptional so, or that big. Or, yeah, it, that's so, interesting. Yeah, with long-distance shooting, I always call it the 500-yard syndrome. Like After 500 yards, like things seem to become magic. If I talk to a hunter, they look at a 500-yard shot for a deer as being this, except, this crazy long Sure distant shot. And I'm like, man, I wouldn't even, it wouldn't even be fair to shoot a deer closer than that. I'm, you just, <laughs> you just kill it for no reason. You know what I mean? There's sure, no sport yeah. in it. Yeah. No challenge. Yeah. But if you look at the spin of the earth, if you look at the spin drift of the bullet, if you look at your respiratory pause, if you look at your mental program, the trifecta of performance, what you're focusing on, what your self top looks like, your trigger squeeze, the surprise trigger break, uh, natural body position, all of the things that we would systematically work through in training, no one thing is probably going to take you off target at 500 yards. And what happens is people don't ever care for all of these little things because they don't think they're that big of a deal. But what happens is when two or three of these small things get together, they start making a huge impact. And that's where levels of performance, when people are like, man, I'm trying, I'm trying to earn more money. I'm trying to have more time in my schedule. I want more energy to be with my family. Whatever it is they're trying to do, they don't ever notice what the thing is that's standing in its way because it's not one single major thing that's obvious that they can attack and kill. It's three, four, five, 10, 15 little tiny things that they just continuously ignore. Yeah. So that's taken it a whole lot step deeper, but that's where the magic. Yeah, that, that's fascinating because you, you talk about you know, time, energy, money, all the things that I, I know that the listeners are, are thinking about and things that are on their mind. And you talk about that level of complexity to be successful. I think a lot of people get misguided because they go, they try something and it doesn't work. And they go, okay, well, I'm just not good at it, or I'm just, it's just not, you know, it's not my thing, or, you know, whatever. And, and they, they give up on it, or they lower their goals, or they give up on their dreams, and they don't realize the level of preparation, level of complexity that goes into a successful anything, right? We're talking about hunting, or, or whatever the case might be. The level of complexity to be successful, it, it, it takes time, it takes practice, it takes analyzing, it takes having a coach. It takes having somebody else there to guide you and to correct you and help you help you along. And it's also interesting, Eric, that you point out there's no one thing, right? I think back to my wrestling career and it's like there was no like one single thing that can that can really uh put your you know make a wrestling match go wrong. But it's like it's it's the combination of 
uh, several little things that can, right? It's these little habits that all add up to either success or failure. So um, I think it's, a, it's an interesting way to break down and to, to look at and think about human performance. Absolutely. And so let's go back to becoming a SEAL. Like, when did you think, I want to become a Navy SEAL? Were you an athlete in high school and you were sort of seeking this, this next level of, uh, of human performance for yourself? Or what was it that, that led you into wanting to become a Navy SEAL and when did that happen and how? Well, really what I wanted is I wanted to be like my dad. And that had me on a path towards becoming a sheriff, to, to go into law enforcement uh, but I had a couple things working against me. Uh, one, I was a little bit colorblind, not colorblind, color deficient. And I knew that would be an issue. Uh, and two, I was only going to be 18 when I got done with high school. And you can't go into the sheriff's department, at least not the cities I was at, at, at such a young age. So I knew that I needed some sort of something to do between high school and when I ha- would have the opportunity to go into law enforcement. So the military was kind of an obvious choice. And that's where I started looking at things. I was actually all signed up to be an Army Airborne Ranger. Then in 1990, Charlie Sheen's movie uh, Navy SEALs came out. And I have to admit that was the reason I shifted (laughs) from – I didn't realize that there was a special forces unit inside of – that worked inside the ocean. And I grew up as a surfer. So I'm like, wow, that sounds pretty good to me. Uh, Me and my best friend went to the recruiting office. Uh, We saw the videos. He said, that looks actually a little too hard. Let's not do that one. And that that was the moment where – I was like, I have to do the most difficult, most challenging, whatever it is I'm preparing for, I need to prepare myself at the highest level so that when I go to become a law enforcement officer, which I never ended up doing, but if I go during that path, I was like, I need to prepare myself at the highest level. And I would have always said I'm not competitive. And I was actually teaching a business uh, seminar and I was describing my non-competitiveness to somebody. And I said, yeah, I actually like to get so much better than anyone else that it's not even a race. You know what I mean? That I'm not even because I don't like the con. I don't like the competition. And he looked at me. He's like, "Hey, that is as competitive as you can get." <laughs> so that's what it was. That's what drove me into it. I'm like, okay, if I'm going to do it, I want to be do the best so that I I can just do anything I want. Um, and then, uh, like I said, I my dad getting sick. It put me in a spot, which I actually look as very lucky uh, in a way that he did get sick. Not not for personal reasons. Obviously, I'm sad, and I wish he didn't. Um, but in a way, it saved my life, which I can go into later. But uh, I knew I had to replace that. I knew I was young enough to not be done with someone to lead me, but I was old enough to realize that I needed help. So what was SEAL training like for you? I mean, we've heard from, for the you know listeners who have been longtime listeners, have heard episode 45, way back in episode 45, Mark Devine, uh, episode 132 with Tom Shea, and, and episode 163 with Rourke Denver were all uh, Navy SEALs and, and shared their take. I guess, what's, what's your take, Eric, on uh, Navy SEAL training for you? Well, I've been, I went twice. Uh, so there's a story in that. Uh, before I went to Navy SEAL training, I was a Marine reconnaissance corpsman. So Marines don't have their own medics, so they use Navy corpsmen. Uh, and I went through recon training. Uh, it's, it's not as complex, not as difficult, but very difficult and de- demanding. So I already had a very good background in that kind of stuff. Very much a natural fit for who I, who I was bred to be as a person, as a breed of person. Um, so it wasn't too bad for me. Now, with that said, SEAL training, like anything of significance, 
is got enough stuff and time and require commitment requirements that given enough time, something's going to get a hold of you. You know, some guys do breeze through, no, <laughs> never failing anything. Uh, but I got caught up a couple times in a few things. One of them was land navigation, which brought me to my, like literally brought me to my knees. I ended up almost dying in the snow, but, uh, but besides that, most days were enjoyable. Um, because I like that. I, uh, like I was saying, I'm bred for that kind of work. Um, and that was my first opportunity in life where I was able to live out for, for which I was bred and experienced that happiness and joy. Uh, so challenging, yes, but it wasn't too bad. I, I just like that stuff. So you, you talked about almost dying in the snow. Can you share that story with us? This is a, you know, the title of this podcast is Success Through Failure, and I ask all my guests to share, share a time where they failed, a story where they failed, and maybe this is a good one for you to share. Could, could you share that story? Sure, absolutely. Uh, before I do, I think it's, I always have, anytime the word failure comes up, I always feel like I need to clarify it just so that people know where I'm coming from. Uh, so failure to me is not something to be avoided. Um, failure to me is when we run out of time, talent, or strength. And running out of time, talent, and strength does something very special. It actually gets more time, more talent, more strength if you understand how to do it. The yeah. same is working out, right? Like we want to run out of strength when we work out so things break down so we go to muscle failure so that things can respond in a way to build our strength. So first and foremost, that's important. And yeah, I love that. I have big distinctions between failing, quitting, and stopping. Those are three different ways to cease an activity. All have different ramifications. But let me bring it to the story. So there I was, we were in Mount Laguna, which is east of San Diego, and it was snowing. Uh, and there's not a lot of snow in the foothills or these, these hills of California, not, not the ones that are just, you know, close to the coast. You know, usually you got to get a little further out, a little higher, but it was snowing. So all week we're doing land navigation. Um, I'm not particularly good. Like I have no natural sense of direction. I'll, I'll kind of bebop around the world or driving sort of lost because I don't pay attention. I'm in my own head a lot, but if... <laughs> But I was a point man. Um, so if I lock down on it, like a series of steps and processes, I do quite well in land navigation. But uh, the end of the week, cold, tired, just some fatigue. I made a mistake at the bottom of a hill. Um, realized that I made a mistake. I'm like, man, I was running out of time. So I went up this snowy hill and I went straight up instead of zigzagging or, you know, you're not allowed to use trails. Uh, got over the top of the hill, stopped, looked at my map. And realized, oh my gosh, I made a mistake. I was not supposed to go over this hill. Came back and over the hill, back to my original um, space. Uh, by this point, I was majorly fatigued. Um, sat down, tried to gather myself. When I teach perseverance and other things, I'll tell the story about my toenail. I had Ziploc bags over my feet because we don't have any snow equipment. And my toenails were now coming off. So I had little bloody toenail things in the snow that I'd plucked wow. out. Uh, my feet are still numb um, from that. Didn't quite get frostbite, but I got whatever's in between frostbite and not frostbite that leaves your toes numb for the rest of your life. I got that. Wow. <laughs> so I reviewed my map and um, realized I had made a couple mistakes. One is originally I didn't make a mistake the first time. <laughs> I realized I did need to be over that hill. Huh. Interesting story here. Like I just did a little video when I was mountain biking. Uh, the cool thing about mountain biking is you really got to look where you want to go, not where you don't want to go. You don't want to, yeah. you don't want to let fear drive you. Sure. And one of the things I noticed, like if something's extra scary, I'll tend to look down. I don't want to fall off, which is natural. And if I get tired, 
Um, that's why I like to exert myself. That's why I like people to, I don't, when I train executives, it's not just information and knowledge. We go and do experiences so that we can put context and meaning behind it. For instance, I was obviously fatigued, uh, on this land navigation course. And what happens is you just start looking down, you, you're, you lose the big picture, you get tunnel vision, not in a good way. So I bebopped as hard as I could over that hill, came stumbling back to camp, literally knew I was going to fail my test. I got to the point where I can only go 10, 15, 20 yards at a time, and I'd have to sit in the snow, 10, 15 yards at a time, sit in the snow. Wow. Uh, because so you're so exhausted? Yes. Just physically, yes, my body was failing. Uh, came back into camp and stumbled in, and they're, they're like, what the hell, Davis? And I'm like, yeah, I did not. This is third phase, so you've been in training for a while, so they knew me. You know, I have a good reputation. I was a pretty good student. And I'm like, yeah, that did not work out. I did not pass that one. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, no kidding. Uh, and they go, good news, though. We're going to retest you today. Usually they retest you the next day. So I'd stumbled into camp thinking, okay, I'm good. You know what I mean? I made a mistake, a couple, <laughs> couple of them sequentially. Uh, but I got this. I'm, you know, Marine reconnaissance, the land navigation was as difficult, if not more. So I had a history of doing, you know what I mean? I've done this thing before. And... So I was looking bad. My friends know I look, look bad. All, I mean, it was a thing. So guys were feeding me food, water, everything. So I went back out, and I'm trying to make a long story medium. Um, one of the other corpsmen, the other medics in the course, he was also retesting, but he knew how bad of a physical state I was in. Um, SEAL training is not a great opportunity to tell instructors that you're tired and you don't want to go. So <laughs> I, I, didn't get the, I didn't get to do that. <laughs> Uh, so the other one kind of shadowed me the best he could. Of course, he had his own land nav course, but every time we crossed paths or he saw me, he'd come find me, which is a great testament to the kind of brotherhood that you find inside of there because he risked his own ability to pass because he's like, you're going to die. Wow. So uh, anyway, I kept going and to bring the long story just a little bit shorter. Um, I experienced the same fatigue near the end of this course where I was only going five or seven yards at a time. I wow. uh, started to think about my kids, had some hallucinate, this would hallucinate a little bit. Um, but it was pure perseverance. Uh, the reason I think it's also is to failure, right? So one thing about failure, I, w- I think it might have, I don't, I wish I can attribute this quote is usually when we fail, we don't fail all the way. So on my second retest, which if I didn't pass, by the way, I would have been rolled out of training. Uh, my body was failing, but it's not like it just pass it out, right? It just means failing means it couldn't walk continuously. So I just kept hoeing to the point of failing and then flopped over in the snow and then waited, kept calm next to the point of failing, which I, this story as an entrepreneur and a writer, I've repeated a couple times <laughs> as well in, in a different <laughs> domain, but yeah, I just kept going. I'm like, okay, all I can, I got my human limits. I'm going to hit my limits over and over again. And I did that cycle back into camp and passed not a ton to spare, uh, wow. but I came in pulling off my clothes, stripped down to my shirt, which is a really weird thing to do in the snow. And then next thing I knew, I woke up with two, three sleeping bags around me, uh, buddies feeding me M&Ms or trying to get me to Holy wake up and, eat and, and heat lamps. Uh, so that was, is that was as far to failure as I've ever been. Wow. And how long was that whole ordeal? Like, like if, like when you went out the second time, like how many hours were you out? <laughs> you know, that's a good question. 
I do not know how, how I, I could guess, but if I say, oh, the land nav test was X amount of hours or time, I'm sure I'd get it wrong. And then somebody online would be like, did you really go to SEAL training? But <laughs> right. It's a handful of hours. It's a definitely yeah. a long duration. Yeah. And wow. it's long enough where the day starts first thing in the morning. And by the time I did two tests, it was coming into evening time. So some amount of hours um, and some amount of distance. And, and the distance was... Uh, uh, multiplied for me a little bit on that first one because I went back and forth a couple times. So I want to talk a little bit about what, something you said that led into that conversation was you talked about the type, the breed of person that you are and that you were bred for this kind of thing. And the kind of thing that you just shared is absolute hell and something that, that people don't voluntarily typically want to go through. Um, I, I've been through things nowhere at that level again, but I lost 22 pounds in two and a half days for wrestling to make weight. And, and it was absolute hell. Um, and it was something that I chose to do and it was, it was a voluntary thing. And, and, but I, you know, and I feel like a lot of the people who listen to this, this show are, are the same type of people. They, they are willing to push themselves to failure or, or close to failure to, uh, achieve something meaningful. And this is something that was meaningful for you. And, but, but we, as, as a, I don't know, I guess as an advanced society, I'm not just talking about America, but the world, right? Most people, at least in the, in the, in the developed world, we have so many things at our fingertips that we don't have to do things like that. You don't have to lose all the weight that I talked about. You don't have to go through almost dying like you did. We don't have to, right? Because we can sit on our couch and watch TV and go to the store and buy food. We don't have to go kill our food. Like it's, it's, life can be so easy for us. But, but I've heard you talk about something called operant conditioning and how, you know, really humans aren't bred for just sitting in an office and, and, and living this sort of totally domesticated life. You know, I just discovered something called F3. It's, it's fitness fellowship and faith. And this morning at 530 in the morning, it was raining downpour. And I'm out in a, in a grass field with a bunch of dudes who I hardly know do, working out. Right. And because, and it was fun. It's, it's awesome. But there are certain people who I don't think really enjoy that. But I think that's, that's part of what we need. I think, I think it's, it's, it's a healthy thing to have in your life. Can, can you talk a little bit about this operant conditioning and, and how you've wrapped this concept, I think, into your, into your latest book, Habits of Heroes? Sure. So operant conditioning is a, uh, I would say it's a style of behavior change or it's a method or a strategy of changing behavior uh, that is really well done in animals, but not so well done in humans. When you, so I have a Belgian Malinois. They're like German shepherds. They're 30% smaller and 30% nastier. They're, they're the pr premier dog used in the SEAL teams. Um, I got her from Mike Ritland who trains and breeds and dogs for government and SEAL team, stuff like that. He was in buds with me as well. He's also SEAL. And I really dug in to learning how to train this dog when I first got her because we want and need a protection dog in her life. Uh, so I dove into behavior science. And the people who are experts and pros at actually applying behavior science are, are dog trainers. Um, these people are passionate about training their dogs. And I'll share some stories about how passionate they are probably naturally as I explain this part. But one of the things I read was this idea of zoosis, and I think that's what, that's what you're getting at. Um, and how it goes is there's this polar bear, and they called it the bipolar bear. And this polar bear was pacing back and forth in the zoo. This was years ago. And doing what they call self-mutilating mutilated behaviors, like 
picking at its paw. You know, you see monkeys throwing crap on people. Um, but the, really the way I think everyone identifies is why are these animals pacing back and forth over and over again? It's like this nervous anxiety. And they describe yeah. it like having the foot on the gas and the foot on the brake at the same time. So what sure. they learned is carnivores are used to like roaming like 40, 50,000 acres or four or 5,000 acres. I don't know what it is. Some a huge amount of acreage. Mm. And now they're put into this four, five, 20 yard pen. And how the lady described it in the book was like, hey, <laughs> this thing is built to hunt. It's built to search out its food. It's built to cover many, many miles in a day, week, month, year. And we took all of that and compressed it into this little cubicle that we call a zoo. And then now when you go to the zoo, that's why you'll see these animals pacing. And zoos are doing better now at like simulating hunts and everything like that. Um, but I also believe there's some back-end story to the zoo as well where they're using Prozac and things like that. With this bipolar bear, the wow. story, that's what they talked about is having to medicate the bear, which I have no moral judgment assuming that the bear has to be in the zoo. Um, but of course, if the bear is there simply for our entertainment, somebody might take a look at that. But it's what I understood. When I heard her say in the book, I think it's The History of Kindness is the name of the book, and I really need to write that down because I speak of it on every interview. But she goes, an animal is happy when it's living out for which purpose it is bred for. Mm. And I thought, oh, my God. I literally pulled uh. over my car. I was in the c central California desert, hot, steaming, um, just driving home from a, a dog event, right? Teeth of leadership. Like, we'll take these dogs and train corporations, sports teams, how behavior change actually works. And tears in my eyes, like, oh, my God. That's why... I can get frustrated. That's why at night I can be antsy. That's why I can do self-mutilating behaviors. Like when I was a kid, <laughs> I was that kid that always shook his head or had all these little ticks and did all these little weird things until I got old enough to play outside. And I always wondered why they went away and it's because my mom just let me go play outside. <laughs> so this became part of our breed. So I'll read the description. They have excessively high prey drive and are excessively exuberant or playful. This level of energy often spans from their youth into adulthood. They can be destructive and develop bad behaviors if not given enough stimulation and exercise. This often causes problems for others who are not familiar with such a breed. So wow. that describes a few things. That described me my entire life. That could very well describe a kid with ADHD or an adult with ADHD, ADH, um, ADD, right? Sure. Um, but what that was was the breed description for my Belgian Malinois. And that's when it hit me. Like, well, of course, a French poodle or a bulldog or a Malinois or a, a Chihuahua, like these are, di we're all, they're all dogs, right? But they're bred differently. So human beings, obviously, for thousands and thousands of generations, however long we've been in existence, females would naturally want to breed with the guys who are bringing home the food. The guys who are bringing home the food would very much like the female who's like going to prep it and cook it. And I'm not saying those roles need to stick. But I am saying that for a long time, we were kind of attracted to these things. So we kept breeding towards that. It's called eugenics. So it's a very important piece. And like when you go to SEAL training, you can get motivated and fired up because of movies and TV, which is a little bit of a false sense of motivation. But then when you actually get in SEAL training, they're going to find that. They don't know why yet. Like they don't understand the full science, but they're going to identify that and they're going to weed people out. And they're weeding them out because it's only the people who are kind of bred for that kind of thing. Yeah who are going to make it. And then I can go into flow state and all kinds of reasons why I can swim for six and a half hours straight or suffer in the cold where other people are there in a different experience than I am. 
Um, but that's the basics for the breed. And so one of the core elements of happiness that I teach is to understand your breed, personality testing, and a few other things that so you truly understand what makes you happy and what makes you tick. So then you can design a life around that very intentionally. Again, performance through process. We're being meticulous and diving into the complexity because that's how we win. So if we want to take this, everything you just talked about right now, and turn it into an action item, something that the listener can do in the next, let's say, 24 to 48 hours, what would that be? And obviously, that's, you know, you talk about flow state and all these other things, you know, and, and personality tests and, and testing it to figure out what, you know, quote unquote breed we are and, you know, what, what we're wired for. I mean, is, is that something we do? If we want to take an actionable item out of this, what would you say we could do in the next 24 to 48 hours? Yeah, if you're going to do an actionable item out of, out of this piece, it would be a first step. Again, there's no one thing. This is the trick with these kind of questions or when I think about this, like, boy, I don't want someone to think there's just going to be this one thing they do that's going to do it. But one sure. thing can get them started is first they can start to understand themselves a little better. And there's tools out there like the Enneagram test. I've been doing that one, using that one lately. So it's called Enneagram. You can do an Enneagram test, which it's a personality test, an assessment. Um, and that's a good start. Uh, there's other, there's a whole bunch of other, the reason I'm saying it's a good start, cause this isn't something you can do alone. You need somebody who knows what they're doing, right? A coach, a trainer, somebody to help you with, you need a brotherhood or a tribe around you. You need, cause this is so counterculture. Uh, so you're gonna have to start to build a brotherhood or a tribe around you because this, it's too not normal anymore. Um, but that's how it's safe. Somebody wanted an action step. I would say take a personality test and start to understand who you are, what was stamped into you from birth and what's been created from your experience. And then what can you change? And for the listener, you've heard me say this many times, but this is another version of a productive pause. And, and, and Eric, what, I, what I've sort of uh, uh, cultivated from, from so many interviews over the years is that uh, one habit of success that every successful person does that I've interviewed is some, sorm, some sort of, of hitting the pause button, some sort of, of getting off the treadmill of life to actually evaluate. And this is, this, is, this is a great example of it. And I define the productive pause as a short period of focused reflection around specific questions that leads to clarity of action and peace of mind. And so I urge the listener not just to listen, skip through this podcast and listen to this one and go on to the next one, and, but, but actually hit the pause button on your life. Do some self-evaluation. Do some reflection. Figure out who you are, what motivates you, what drives you. Because when you do that deep, fundamental, foundational work, you can then next do your best work. And your best work comes from figuring out who you are, what you want, and, how, and then figuring out how to go about doing it. And when you start living your life that way, it's, you know, hard work becomes, I've talked about this before, but hard work becomes inspired action, right? What's hard work to one person, like, you know, uh, you know building a brick wall, laying bricks, is to, to the next person, it's, it's building a cathedral, right? So, so this is some of the most powerful, most effective work that you can do. Eric, can you recommend a, a, a tool, something that, that you help, that, that you use that helps you be more effective? Maybe it's a tool, maybe it's a technology, maybe it's a, a supplement, maybe it's an app, anything that, that you use, some, some kind of hack that, uh, that you could recommend? Ooh, um, I guess actually I'm like, oh man, okay, what would I point to? Something that someone can touch and, and feel and use. And this will be a strange one, but I use Google Documents a lot and I'll explain why. So everything I do has a standard operating procedure, which allows me to put a process that'll produce performance on the other end. Uh, 
so it's kind of funny, but I use, so I use a Google document structure where I literally, when I return emails, I have a checklist on how I'm going to do that. So I guess maybe the tool I would say is a checklist, a strategic checklist that allows us to identify and capture all of the elements of something that's important to us and then allows us to execute them in an effective and efficient way and allows us to evolve them. Because all the, what happens is people are looking for all this time and energy and the ability to make more money. And they're like, I get questions all the time. Well, I don't have time for any of that. Like, yeah, I know. I get that. Because everything you do is kind of haphazard and people are responding and reacting things like a victim where they need to play that hero role. Um, the reason I don't recommend any apps or anything like that is because it has to be highly customizable. So a Google spreadsheet resides online. I can share it, work with my networks, work with other people. And every time I find a better way to do something or I realize that I'm missing a step, I could just add to it. Uh, so I use Google quite a bit, actually a lot. Like yeah. it's crazy how much Google documents I have. <laughs> uh, I got to say, I'm in the same boat, Eric. I love Google Docs, Google Spreadsheets. I'm uh Big fan. Use them for all the same reasons. I just capture a lot of information there and uh, and track processes, and I can share, create systems, share those with with people who work for me, etc. So, um, so good stuff. Great recommendation, Eric. We didn't get to talk a whole lot about your books, Raising Men in uh, Habits of Heroes, but I will have links to those in the action plan. So for a listener, just go to jimharshawjr.com slash action, or certainly you can go to Eric's website, ericdavis215.com. But Eric can, you share, Eric, can you share a little bit more about how we can find you, follow you, or anything you're working on right now? That's the best place, uh, ericdavis215.com. It, you know, my social media links are there and then my articles. And if someone, there's that, the Habits of Heroes is a free ebook. If you put your email address in, you're going to get that ebook sent to you. And then you're, then you're on my list. And my, my list is I'm producing valuable knowledge and information, tactics and strategies and delivering it to the people in my world as often as I can. So that is the best place to keep up with me. Awesome. And if you can tell from just from this episode for the listener, you, you can certainly tell Eric's got a lot more here that he can share. And uh, I know a lot of that stuff comes out in his book as well as in his email. So Eric, thank you so much for making time to come on the show. Yes, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. It was a great time. And for the listener, until next time, take the time to get clear on your goals and embrace failure as a stepping stone on your path to success. 